This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode, we are going on a quest, a journey through South America to discover its hidden wonders, and maybe, by doing that, discover something hidden in ourselves too. Are you ready? Yeah, me too. Let's go. Taking us on this quest is Dylan Thuras. He is the co-founder of Atlas Obscura, which is one of my favorite websites and books. It's absolutely huge. It has millions of followers around the world. And if you're not familiar with it, go to atlasobscura.com right now to check it out. I absolutely love it. So basically, its mission is to open our eyes to the magic of the world, to the mystery of the world, to all the weird and wonderful and crazy things this amazing planet of ours has to offer. When we think of wonders of the world, we think of the Great Pyramids, Machu Picchu, the Grand Canyon, and these are undeniably awe-inspiring, but they're obvious too, aren't they? Atlas Obscura flips that on its head. To experience true wonder, they say, you don't have to go to these big, famous sites where everyone goes. Awe is all around us. It's just hidden. It's obscured from our view. Wonder is a state of mind, they say, not a place. And that's what they're shining a light on, and that's where we're about to go. So this is a subject really close to my heart. I write about it all the time. I've done a book on Wonders of the World, and I talk about it as much as I can because I think it's really, really important. We are suffering a wonder deficit in our modern lives. Our birthright is the stars as our blanket, the natural world as our playground. But we've surrounded ourselves in concrete and computer screens. That's important because wonder is more than just a fleeting thing. It's a seed from which the best things in life grow. Art and science and ideas and history. Wonder, I write in the start of that book, is fine dining for the soul. And that's what this story is about. So if you're ready for that, if your soul's feeling hungry, you can connect with Atlas Obscura on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Atlas Obscura. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-B-S-C-U-R-A. They post awesome, mind-bending, inspiring stuff. I think you're going to like it. The book, Atlas Obscura, is gorgeous too. Get it on Amazon. It's a New York Times bestseller and well-deserved. And they also run really cool trips that you can actually join. So check it out atlasobscura.com. I'll link to all this on the website too, of course. So we're just about to get going with the show, but first, and really quickly, remember, if you are enjoying the podcast, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, help this message, our message of connection to the outdoors, of unity with other cultures and people around the world, reach as many people as possible. You can find out background information, photos, and videos about this episode and all the others at armchair-explorer.com where you can also sign up for my newsletter. I send out recommendations for the best travel podcast episodes to listen to, the best adventure travel trips to dream about, as well as travel writing, photography, and lots more. It's free, it's cool, and I think you'll like it. 
Remember, you can also book all these trips inspired by the show by just getting in touch. I've set up an adventure travel agency where I use my 15 years as an award-winning travel writer for the likes of the London Times and National Geographic to help you plan and book your dream trip. And I guarantee that everything you book through me is sustainable, positive and benefits to the communities and ecosystems you'll visit please do get in touch. My social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. So come and hang out. If you love traveling and adventure, we're going to get on well. But don't worry about that just yet because we are about to head off on our quest. Dylan picks up the story talking about the inspiration for Atlas Obscura and unsurprisingly, it's bizarre. I think you're going to like this one. Let's go. The idea was like so many guidebooks were missing the things that we thought were interesting, right? So that might be an abandoned ruin or a outsider art project or a weird little museum that's like dedicated to wax anatomical uh, figures, right? These things that when you see them, you're like, this is incredible. How is this not like the thing everyone's talking about? And so we wanted to kind of gather that stuff and just kind of broaden what gets to be considered like a worthy attraction, like the thing that you're going to actually leave, you know, your trip saying that was the the, the greatest, craziest, most interesting thing I did. Um, and then I think as we did that, you know, we realized really immediately, and, and part of this comes from my childhood. My parents took me on road trips all, all around the Midwest, which is where I'm from. You know, we went to kind of normal places like Mount Rushmore, but we also went to like these classic Midwestern roadside things like the Corn Palace and wall drug. And there's a place in Wisconsin that I cite as like one of my Atlas places, like a very influential place called the House on the Rock, which is unbelievable, wild collection of all sorts of stuff. You, it's almost impossible to explain because it's just a singular location, but it has sculpture of a squid fighting a whale the size of the Statue of Liberty inside of this, this building. It has a a hallway that looks like it goes on forever. It has the world's largest indoor uh, carousel. It, it's just unbelievably wild, unique, artistic creation uh, in the middle of kind of, you know, a small town Wisconsin. And so I think I'd always been really attracted to that kind of stuff. And and the thing you realize is like that stuff can be really close at hand. It, the, the, the idea of what a wonder is has nothing to do really with its geographical location. We kind of always assume that the amazing things are, you know, going to be far away, that you have to, to, to travel uh, you know, halfway around the world. But there is so much so close to every person that has that kind of incredible story. And not all of them are as obvious as like a statue of a squid fighting a whale the size of the Statue of Liberty. Man, I have got to go and see that one day. And by the way, just for some fun, other weird Midwest attractions include the world's largest ball of twine, the world's largest glob of paint, the Spam Museum, the Nuclear Waste Adventure Trail, and a 42-foot-tall UFO landing port. Because, you know, can you imagine if finally Ascension Interstellar Intelligence made the unfathomably long journey across the stars to come and see us, and then we're like, you know what, Bob, there's nowhere to park. Let's just go somewhere else. No idea what they're drinking out there in the Midwest, but I want some. And for Dylan, those moments of childhood Midwestern road trip madness had a profound effect. They were the seeds of this groundbreaking idea that would later become a worldwide phenomenon. That was the start. 
but it really came into its own with, you know, as should maybe be expected, a mystery. There was a blog on the internet called The Proceedings of the Athanasius Kircher Society. And it was this weird blog written anonymously, but I really, I loved it. It, it, it covered kind of these esoteric wonders from history, sometimes places around the world. And it was really in line with the kind of stuff that I found myself writing about, gravitating towards. So at one point, this blog put up a post that said, basically, I want to put on an event. Who wants to help me plan this? And I wrote in and said, uh, I really like what you do. I'm interested in helping you put this on. Josh was the anonymous author behind this blog. That's Josh Forer. He's the co-founder of Atlas Obscura along with Dylan. And he's also who travels with Dylan through South America on this trip. And Athanasius Kircher, by the way, was a 17th century polymath responsible for such inventions as the cat piano, the speaking trumpet, and the vomiting statue. He was before his time. Can you imagine what YouTube would do with him if he was alive today? I'll be sharing all this craziness on my social media, so do check that out. Anyway, Josh and him got together and magic started happening. So we did this other project where we put on this real-world night of kind of wonders. Uh, Real-life Rain Man, a guy named Kim Peek, uh, was was there, uh, along with his father, and did kind of feats of memory. Uh, This guy, Colonel Joe Kittinger, who for years held the world record for longest freefall. It's part of like early Air Force experiments. He jumped out of a plane. He was there to talk about that. We did this crazy recreation of a constructed language called Solrasol, which can be uh, played on instruments or spoken through color. That is amazing. That sounds like the sort of thing that would land on a 42-foot UFO landing port in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. But I looked it up. It's real. And it was created by a 19th century French music teacher called Jean-Francois Soudre in an attempt to build a universal language out of music, which is very cool and very admirable. Anyway, the event was a huge success. They sold out the venue. It got written up in The New Yorker. And they realized they just really enjoyed working together and wanted to do more. And that's when the magic happened. We started talking about travel and kind of like why there wasn't a great travel resource for the kinds of things we were interested in. And so we came up with this project to create a user-generated guide to the world's hidden wonders, to all the things that sort of aren't covered in normal travel. People get caught in these like story loops, right? You know, when it hits this peak and it gets it gets told, and it is amazing, and people go and they they bring back those stories, but then it creates kind of these narrow channels that everyone starts to fall into. And it becomes a shame because it starts to degrade the experience uh, for the people who live there. It starts to degrade the experience for the traveler. And the thing is, like, the world is big, and there is, like, a lot to explore. And so the more you can kind of create these alternate tributaries, these things that take people on different paths. I think the, the more um, the more magical the world becomes, the more choices people have, and kind of just it helps tourism do something I think positive in the world, which is kind of distribute people to places they might not otherwise have gone and kind of disperse the the negative impacts of tourism and also disperse the positive impacts of tourism. 
So Atlas Obscura started as a bit of fun, but it became about something far more important. It became about positive travel because travel at its best can help empower communities and protect ecosystems. But it can also help us. It can inspire us to look beyond the obvious, to look for the world's hidden wonders, and yes, to go and look at giant statues of squids fighting whales. And when we do that, as we'll see, something else happens even more fundamental. It changes the way we see the world. But let's get to South America first. So Dylan and Josh did this huge party. They set up the website. Atlas Obscura was born, but they hadn't actually spent that much time together. They'd fallen in love with these eccentric wonders independently, but they'd never gone out into the world to actually look for them as a team. It was time for an utterly eccentric and amazing South American road trip. The idea was to like go and find a bunch of stuff that was kind of undercovered, that was had an incredible story to be told. We did it all in a month. We went to Colombia, Peru. We went to Venezuela, Bolivia. It was like a breakneck thing. And yeah, we saw some really wild stuff. They did see some wild stuff. And that's because they went looking for things that were out of the ordinary. The crazy, off-the-beaten-track stuff that no one else was interested in. The stuff that was glittering, but in the shadows. They went looking for the hidden wonders of South America. And it was one epic ride. So the first big place we wanted to see was in Colombia. So we stopped by, like, the Cathedral of Salt. But we were really there to go to see the Caño Cristales, which is in, especially back then, still kind of in a uncertain political state. But it's this kind of famous river that turns these beautiful, incredible colors each season uh, because of the underwater plant life uh, that grows there. And they sort of turn pink and green and yellows. And so that involved like taking a little prop plane across Colombia and then like driving way out to kind of the middle of, of, of nowhere, what felt like the middle of nowhere. Nothing is the middle of nowhere because someone is everywhere. And then just journeying around this river and trying not to get caught out there during a storm and like get get <laughs> washed away, which kind of almost did happen. I remember at one point just care we had I was doing, I was shooting these videos for this, so that was my role in the journalism, was producing videos. But I, I had like all my camera gear and my other stuff like on my head as we're like walking through these chest high rivers, basically trying to get back to camp before things got dicier, which we did and it was fine. But that was a hasty retreat. I suppose if you're going to get washed away and drowned in a river, it might as well be the most beautiful one in the world, which it really is known as that. And it's also known as the river that ran away from paradise, which gives you an idea of the kind of color and spectacle of it. But while they were doing that, they came across something far crazier. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. 
Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. We had heard that there were some villages and valleys in Colombia where where kids still use the this zipline system that was created by loggers in the 1950s. Uh, because there are these towns that like exist on these enormous, enormous rifts, these huge valleys where it takes six hours basically to walk down one side and up the other. Uh, but you know, on either side is like the town and the school or things that people want to get between. So loggers basically made their own DIY zipline system. They like a couple of concrete blocks, steel cabling, your own homemade zipline equipment. You brought your own stuff. So you brought your little metal roller and your rope harness, which you just tied up yourself, and your brake, because if you didn't have a brake, you went flying into the other side. And uh, we talked to some kids who basically like, used it to get back and forth. I tried the zipline. Uh, it was, it is a, a heck of a way to get, to get, to go back and forth to school. Oh my God. Can you imagine if that was your commute to school? Not the big yellow school bus, not the number 49 in your mum's car, a high-powered DIY zipline straight out of Willy Wonka meets the Jungle Book. It was wild. You go really fast. You know, when you when you put on the brake at the end, there's smoke flying off of this little, you know, Y-shaped stick with a piece of metal in it that helps you. And, you know, I think it's it's some combination of of terrifying and like a failure of, of state infrastructure and like really, really exciting and, and delightful for a, for a kid to think about. Okay, not Willy Wonka. This is more Bear Grylls. Can you survive the commute to school? And the answer is, if you're a kid, who cares? This is way too much fun. But actually, it is really dangerous. They're flying over a 1,200 foot abyss. And Dylan was, in the words of the article Josh wrote about it for Slate magazine afterwards, shaking and pale and seemed to be on the verge of vomiting. Small price to pay for getting to be, for just a few death-defying moments, a real-life Indiana Jones. And that wasn't the only indie moment of this trip either, but more on that later. Next up was Venezuela. We went to Venezuela to see... Uh, the Everlasting Lightning Storm, this place where basically it's got more lightning there than almost anywhere else in the world. So like 250 nights out of the year, there's a, a silent lightning storm that happens above this this region. The Everlasting Lightning Storm. That just sounds so cool. It sounds like something more out of a Marvel movie than real life. And although they say lightning never strikes twice, here on Lake Maracaibo, That's a lie. This little inlet of the Caribbean Sea holds the Guinness World Record for the most lightning strikes per square kilometer, 250 a year on average. And they're happening all the time. Thousands of flashes an hour, 10 hours a night, 260 days a year. It's like watching the sky transformed into one of those plasma globes that you put your hands on in the science museum. 
And although they didn't have to quite battle Thoros or anything like that, they didn't exactly have an easy ride either. And then the trip out to the Everlasting Lightning Storm had its own complications because it took us a while to get there. You know, we had to drive kind of far out. And by the time we arrived at this lake, Lake Maracaibo, it, it had gotten dark. And we had, the plan had been to go out on the lake to this little island in the lake and stay the night there, sort of underneath this lightning storm. Uh, but the, f- the fishermen that we had sort of planned to meet up and have take us out basically said, we don't want to do it because it's, it's now gotten dark and we're afraid of, uh, of, ba- of bandits potentially, um, you know, like attacking the boats. They, there was some issue with like local kind of river piracy. And the solution to this was basically said, well, we don't want to do it, but the we have these teenagers who are like willing to basically do, do this trip. And when we were like, yeah, but like that doesn't solve the bandit problem, right? And they were like, no, 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 it's fine. Like the teenagers will all have guns. And we were like, okay. That's fine. I'll pass. Like if I'm going to get into a gunfight with a load of Venezuelan river pirates, I'd rather the people protecting me weren't trigger happy teenagers who are too young to have any real sense of their own mortality. So they didn't go to the island, but they did see the everlasting storm and it was spectacular. It's estimated that about 1.2 million strikes hit the lake annually, making it by far the most electric place on the planet. Next up was Bolivia, which is an incredible country, home to the famous salt flats, of course, but also more Atlas Obscura type things, like the North Yungas Death Road, which makes walking on tight ropes seem overly safe. The Witch's Market, something out of like a Hogwarts nightmare. And my favorite, Cholita Wrestling, where tough as nails ladies in top hats and dresses beat the living crap out of each other for real. I mean, crazy, all of it but strangely amazing too. And then from there, they went on to Peru. And this is where it gets really Indiana Jones. Not far from, from Machu Picchu in the other direction is, is the last Incan Bridge, which I think is like one of the greatest places in the world. Visually, it's like the quintessential Indiana Jones looking bridge. It's this, it's this hanging uh, suspension bridge. Uh, and it is woven entirely out of a... a this grass or kind of hay-like material that, that grows in the mountains. And sort of that in and of itself is spectacular. Uh, but the thing that I really makes it special to me is that every year the local towns, the, the, the four local towns, basically come together and they cut down the old bridge, which starts to rot because it's really just made of grass and eventually, you know, wears out. So the bridge sort of has a natural season and cycle. And they cut it down and they build a new bridge. They weave a new bridge together. They cut down all of this this grass and spend basically a week, this big festival, weaving weaving this grass into ropes and the ropes into these big sort of cables. And then, you know, before they cut down the the other bridge, they they walk across it and string the main the main ropes. And so even though every year the bridge is new, it is this tie back to the Incan Empire, because this is how this bridge has been made every year since like the height of of the Incan roadway system. And to sort of see this thing that's been this like maintained through generation after generation, recreated this spectacular uh, piece of engineering, frankly. I mean, it's a real unbelievable feat of engineering. When the, when the Europeans arrived and saw it, 
they were terrified to cross it because they didn't, they hadn't really seen suspension bridges like this. And it was the largest single span bridge, you know, in the world. So they, this idea of crossing this swinging rope bridge was just uh, absolutely horrifying to these, you know, early conquistadors. But the bridges are incredibly strong. I mean, they can hold 50 people. They, they're these, these real feats of, of fiber engineering, which is obviously what part of what the Incan Empire really was built around. So I just think it's incredible. The Incans are incredible. At its peak, their empire stretched from the capital Cusco in southern Peru across the western edge of the Andes from Colombia in the north through Ecuador, Bolivia and Chile to the tip of Argentina in the south. They flourished for little more than a century, but in that brief flash, they managed to construct a road network of more than 14,000 miles, subjugate over 10 million people speaking more than 30 different languages, and became the largest civilization of its time anywhere in the world. And they were damn good at building things too. But all of that's just background. I know what you're really thinking. Did he cross it? Damn right he did. That was the first thing we did. We went back and forth across that thing, and it was towards the end of its cycle, so it was a little bit dodgy because because what happens is it starts to slant and shift, and all the little sticks that make up the the walkway of the bridge start to kind of slide in it. So you, you know, it's like uh, I've got some really fun. I've got great video footage of walking across that bridge, and I whenever I need to like try and show my adventurous bona fides. That's like my, that's my go-to. Indie, eat your heart out. And by the way, I will put up videos of all this stuff on the webpage and social media. So if you want to see Dylan wobbling across this crazy bridge, holding on very, very tightly, do go and check that out. So after the Incan Bridge, they did a lot of other cool stuff. They visited Kalap, a vast ruined fortress known as the Machu Picchu of the North. They went hunting for giant snakes in the Amazon. But the highlight was Gokta Falls. The story we wanted to tell about Gokta was that until 2006, no one had heard of Gokta or was traveling to it. Like, no one. The waterfall had this kind of bad reputation or superstitious reputation, right? There was this idea, someone, apparently someone disappeared or died at the base of the waterfall. And it created this idea that there was kind of like an evil spirit or an evil mermaid at the bottom of these falls. Wait, an evil mermaid? I didn't even know that was a thing. So I looked it up and apparently Disney got it wrong again. And aside from the sirens who love nothing more than drowning sailors, the original Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid didn't marry the prince and live happily ever after. Actually, she stabbed him in the heart and bathed in his blood before disintegrating into sea foam. So yeah, it's a thing. And yeah, the locals were understandably worried about stepping on her toes or fins or whatever. So they didn't go there at all. They ignored it. Until back in 2005, an engineer called Stefan Zimmendorf, who'd been working on a water project in the Amazon nearby, happened upon it, came back the next year with surveying equipment and measured it to be 2,531 feet from its top to the pool below, twice the height of the Empire State Building. Evil mermaid or not, people started paying attention. Depending on how you measure it, Gokta Falls 
is sometimes considered the third tallest waterfall in the world or the fifth tallest waterfall in the world. So it kind of comes down, has a top pool, which we weren't able to get to. Um, but we went down to the, the base of the second falls. And, you know, it's, it's such a tall waterfall that it sort of does the same thing that, like an angel falls does, where it starts to just turn into mist and kind of drift away as it comes down. But, you know, at the bottom there is, there is kind of a pool of water. And, you know, even getting within 100, 100 meters, you kind of, you're in the spray, you hear the sound. It, it's a, and it's like an intense hike to get out there. So you kind of like, you're, you put in the work, you're sweating, and you arrive and it's just, it's beautiful. It is. It's easily one of the most spectacular waterfalls on the planet. A two-tier cascade plummeting from the high jungle like some fabled kingdom, 15 times higher than Niagara Falls. A drop so high that the water disintegrates into mist before it even hits the ground. Screw the evil mermaids, screw the cursed. The locals realise not only is this waterfall incredibly beautiful, it's also a huge opportunity because suddenly people started coming, travellers started coming to see this incredible sight that no no one had ever heard of before. So suddenly this town basically gets put on the map. And the really kind of lovely postscript to this story is that what happened is it meant that now that they were not just some nowhere town with some random waterfall, but a town with a top five, you know, waterfall. And so now there's a bunch of, you know, guides and, and folks who take people out there. And it just, it really, and it brought in some of that infrastructure and attention from the government that wasn't there. And so, you know, so it's, it's, it's all complex, but I, I really believe in the, in the power of travel to preserve wonders in the world and to improve, like, the lives and livelihoods of, of people. It's an incredibly powerful economic force. And that's what Atlas Obscura is all about. It's a delicate balancing act, of course, but if you do it right, travel can be a force for good. It can bring economic opportunity to some of the poorest places on the planet. It can help keep traditional cultures alive where they would otherwise die out. And it's a crucial aspect of how wildlife conservation is done today, especially in Africa, helping to protect some of the most critical endangered species on the planet. Check out Praveen Moman's episode about mountain gorillas for a good example of that and a great story. But for Dylan... Gokta Falls represents more than that, too. It's just a good example of, like, talking about wonders in your own backyard. The, the residents of Gokta had this kind of life-changing, world-scale wonder in their own backyard, but for all kinds of reasons, they weren't able to see it. And I think that, for me, has always been a metaphor for how we all live. Like, like we all live at the base of Gokta Falls. We all live surrounded, looking at incredible wonders, but we don't until we can change our frame of mind or be willing to see things in new lights, we're not able to see them like that, you know? It, and it takes kind of that myth-making and storytelling to help make that transition. We all live at the base of Gokta Falls. We are all surrounded by wonders, all kinds of amazing things and magic and mystery, but we can't see them. And that's because wonder is a state of mind, not a place. It's a way of being, a way of going through the world. The quote that opens the book, Atlas Obscura, is by Abraham Joshua Heschel. It says, The beginning of our happiness lies in understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. Wonder is what makes us who we are. It drives us to explore, question, and connect. It is the pure joy of being alive. But we must nourish it for it to thrive. 
we chose that quote because I think this idea of wonder is really important to both Josh and I. It takes on for us, both both of us, a kind of spiritual meaning, like a spiritual significance. A life with filled with wonder is a life filled with meaning and with curiosity. And it has a lot more to do with how you form meaning in your life, how you go about finding the magic in the world, right? Like we all have these experiences where, you know, whether it's like looking at the moon through a telescope for the first time. I I just looked at the moon through the telescope for the first time in, I don't know, 20 years and was like, holy shit. (laughs) It's it's like, that's a real place with like a lot of texture. And like, you know, I, I, these moments of realizing that the world we're in is not mundane but in fact, deeply magical. And that the problem of recognizing that magic lies not with the world, but with us. And it is our job to turn ourselves into vessels of recognizing that magic. And that's where that's where we're talking about the storytelling that you do to yourself uh, comes in. It's, it's finding ways to engage with that beauty, that magic, that wonder is, it is what being a traveler is. It is what being, I think, someone who takes a lot of joy in the world is. And so, you know, I mean, it sounds a little bit harsh, but I guess even to say a life without wonder is to say it's a life without meaning. It's a life without kind of the, the belief in the, the transformative beauty of this like world we all live on and share. And so, yeah, it holds very deep for both Josh and I. And I think it's, it's what we kind of hope to find when we go traveling, you know, just to engage with what makes it Wondrous. I'm just going to repeat that, what Dylan said. The problem of recognizing that magic lies not with the world, but with us. And it is our job to turn ourselves into vessels of recognizing that magic. That is so well said. I absolutely love that. And it really echoes what I say also at the end of every show. The more you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. But that's not always easy. Wonder in the superficial way is cheap, right? Like you can go on the internet and you can see all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, wow, so much. Um, But that's not really, it's not the same as creating a meaningful sense of awe around something. Whether that something is a, uh, you know, some aspect of nature, the natural world, or science, you know, something, you know, the the wonder of of the cosmos, Uh, you know, real wonder comes from deep contemplation. And the world uh, is, it's hard to find the space for that kind of deep contemplation in our world, because it is, it is a busy place, it is a noisy place. And to make the space for that, that deeper personal sense of wonder, you kind of have you have to really you have to really set out to do it and whether you're doing it as a traveler or in your own backyard you kind of have to cultivate that space uh and i think it's it's actually harder to cultivate in some ways in a world that's so filled with this kind of like cheap dose of 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 fast phone wonder but the more you can find space for that deeper wonder the communing with with the natural world and and the deeper world i think the more your life has meaning and and the easier it is to find the good in the world. 
What was once our birthright has become a weekend luxury. Modern life, that relentless drive towards success when every second is filled with information, when the stars are replaced with TVs and mountains are seen only through computer screens, has swelled our egos and diminished our world. But the good news is, and what this quest was really all about, is that wonder is inside us every time we look in awe at the world and realize that we are a part of that world too. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you for taking us on this quest, this amazing journey to discover the hidden wonders of South America. And thank you for all the work you do. Atlas Obscura is an incredible website and book, and I urge you to go and check it out. Just head over to atlasobscura.com and follow their social media at Atlas Obscura. Finally, I just want to say thank you to all you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for helping to spread this message of love for the outdoors and unity and positivity. Thank you for being a part of this community. Your support really does mean the world to me. Now, I usually end with that catchphrase. I've mentioned it a couple of times already in this show. So I'm going to end with something different today. Earlier, I told you that wonder is fine dining for the soul. So my advice to you is explore, dream, and feed your spirit well. Dare to be truly alive.